verses 18 to 29. Revelation 2, 18 to 29. This also is the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our blessed God, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you that Christ speaks to his churches through his word. And that his assessments are always right and true. They are without bias. Father, we pray that we would be humble enough to receive it. That we would heed it. That we would see how we were all prone to wander and to fall. Father, we acknowledge our own weakness. We acknowledge how we need to be corrected. How we need to be uh, guided by your word. Not by our desires. That we ought not to take the world's standards and put a Christian sanction on them. That we ought not to take the world's views and try to find verses to justify them. Father, we pray that you would refine us. Father, we pray that we would think according to your truth. That we would think your thoughts after you. That you would help us to take every thought captive to to the obedience of Christ. Father, we pray for your church. We pray, Father, that we would delight in Jesus Christ, that we would trust in you, that we would trust that you are the one who holds the future, that we would not put our trust in mere men, that it's better to trust in you than to trust in princes. Father, we pray that we would delight in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our time of fellowship, that we would be a blessing one to another. And we pray, Father, that the good news of the gospel would go forward with power even this day. And that Christ, your son, will be exalted. And that your servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. When we look at these letters to the churches in Asia, or Asia Minor, rather, see that today's letter, the letter to Thyatira, it seems as if 
there's some kind of mirror opposite, that Thyatira was commended for their love, their faith, their service, and that we look earlier at the first letter to that of the church in Ephesus, and they were commended for having discernment and upholding truth. We look at how they were rebuked, that Ephesus was rebuked for losing her first love. The assumption there is losing their first love of Christ, they would also lose their first love or their second love for their fellow man. And how do we maintain love for man if we lost our love for Christ? Here we see that uh, the challenges that Thyatira had were almost the opposite, that they, they were commended for love, faith, and service, but their discernment, their truth, their loyalty to Christ and his doctrine uh, was, was wrong that they allowed in this woman, Jezebel. <clears throat> Here, I ask you, on what side do you err? Do you err on being maybe a little too tolerant towards sin? Or are you uh, the other extreme? Let's just try to make it so painfully obvious. Are you one of those Bible thumpers? Do we realize that, uh, that one extreme or the other is not what Jesus has called us to? That there are times for rebuke. There are times to receive rebuke. There are times to give rebuke. We should not delight in either one of them. But we should be humble enough to receive it. And we should be faithful and bold enough to give it when necessary. Here, we ought to understand that steadfast endurance is called for all of us in Christ. But we must be able to follow love, faith, and service. And all at the same time, maintain discernment, truth and holiness. We see that many of the challenges that these churches in <coughs> Asia experienced was that there was a temptation for the church to conform to the culture of the world. Why can't we be like them? We look so different. Our values are so different. Well, this is Jesus calling sinners out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that the light should be pleasant to us because our Lord Jesus indeed is pleasant to us. It will require, it will mean rejection. It will mean that others will mock us and not understand us. This is true for uh, all the faithful people in biblical times. It was true for Jesus. It was true for those throughout church history. Those who were faithful to the Lord Jesus were often misrepresented and uh, derided by those in the world. And for the churches in Asia Minor, Jesus is often addressing uh, how they desired to be like the world and be similar to the world, even as we see in this passage in the message to Thyatira. So the truth that we see, Revelation 2, 18 to 29, Christ commands love, service, and peace in his church, but never at the expense of truth, holiness, and discernment. Christ commands love, service, and peace in his church, but never at the expense of of truth, holiness, and discernment. We'll look at this in four points. <clears throat> the first, Christ's characteristics. The second, Christ's commendation. Third, Christ's censure and, con and condemnation. And fourth, Christ's consolation and challenge. So the first point, Christ's characteristics in verse 18. And the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. <clears throat> in this introduction, <clears throat> unlike the others, there is a reminder 
the words of the Son of God. On one hand, we can say, what more needs to be said? These are the words of the Son of God. What ought you do to them? That we ought to tremble and that we ought to be humble to receive it. What more needs to be said? Here, we think about Christ's interactions with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and how when Jesus proclaimed himself the Son of God, that they took up stones to stone him because they were saying, hey, this man is claiming equality with God. This is what it means for someone to say that they're the Son of God. They're equal with God. It is a divine title to be the Son of God. So that this is who Jesus is. He is the eternal Son of God. He didn't one day become the Son of God. He always is the Son of God. Here, in our language, we make certain distinctions. It is correct and true to say all who believe in Jesus Christ are children of God. But it would be wrong for anyone to say, I am the Son of God. You see the difference? To be a child of God, that's different than saying you are the Son of God. One is blasphemous, the other is biblical truth, that all who are in Christ are children of God, or uh, a daughter of God, a Son of God, not capital S, the Son of God. Think also about what Jesus says here, the words of the Son of God, and we ought to listen to them. Who has eyes like a flame of fire. Our God has eyes that see down into our inner recesses. There is no hiding anything from our God. His eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. That uh, the burnished bronze, the feet of burnished bronze, you think about the, the bottom, right? This is where people stand. It provides stability. That following Jesus Christ means stability for your life. May the stability of your life not be coupled with the standard of the world, which is constantly changing. The world is constantly changing at breakneck speed especially today. But we realize that our Lord Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he is that true stability for you and for me. And his eyes see all that there is. So that's the first point, Christ's characteristics. The second point, Christ's commendation in verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This is the longest letter uh, of the seven letters. This is the longest letter, the church in Thyatira. I ought to mention that Thyatira, as mentioned in the scriptures, uh, perhaps on a few occasions, uh, Lydia mentioned in Acts, she was the seller of purple fabric. Uh, apparently, there was some type of a, a sea shell or sea mollusk, some, something that grows in the sea and that uh, they used that to make this purple dye. And they had some kind of, she probably had some kind of monopoly on it. Uh, she was able to do it. And if you have a monopoly, you can sell your product at whatever price you want. Purple was important because it was the color for royalty. She came from Thyatira. Thyatira <clears throat> was a city, a small city, about a population of 20,000 or so. And um, there were no natural defenses meaning it was a flat place, no river, no mountains, no hills. Uh, so it was very easy for them to get conquered, and they were conquered several times. 
They were basically one, a small city in between some of these major cities. Was it between Sardis and uh, Pergamum? Uh, we mentioned earlier that Pergamum was the capital of the, cap the Roman capital city in Asia Minor. So you can think of them as like a Washington, D.C. Uh, and, and Ephesus, uh, with all their culture, uh, that was more like a New York City in that area. And that Thyatira was kind of like a nothing. They were a small city, but yet they get the longest letter. Here, we ought not to discount this one verse, verse 19. We ought not to discount what Jesus is saying. We think about their commendation. Their commendation is not minor. <clears throat> he says, I know your works, your love, and faith, and service. How about that for change? Especially those within uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Imagine that for someone in our church to be commended for love. Huh? This, is, this ought to be our strong suit. It ought to be everyone's strong suit. Every Christian should have that strong suit of, you know what, I commend, Jesus commends you for your love. We all ought to aspire to that. That, is, that should be a high aspiration for every one of us. That we ought to be commended for our faith and service. Regarding love, think about what Jesus said. Was it to Peter? It's for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Why is it that Christians, certain Christians, have more love than others? It boils down to what Jesus is saying here in Luke seven forty-seven: He who believes that he is forgiven a great debt of sin will love much. And he who thinks that he is not forgiven much at all is not going to love much. This is our understanding of where our love originates. We believe Christ has forgiven us a great debt of sin, and because of it, I'm able to love others. He has loved me greatly in forgiving me, then I can love others because of his great love for me. We think also about this matter of faith. This matter of faith is no small thing. Jesus says that with a Small face, the size of a mustard seed. It probably wasn't the smallest seed possible, but it was a known seed that was small. And he's saying, hey, you don't need much faith. And then you can move mountains. The commendation is not the size of your faith. The commendation is the object of your faith. You need to have the right object. And we think about how Jesus, he commands faith. It was so clear regarding uh, this one centurion that the centurion comes to Jesus and he's a humble man. He asked Jesus regarding his servant. It likely was a head servant, a very trusted servant. He said, my servant is ill. Please come to my, oh, please heal him. And he tells Jesus, I don't need you to come. In fact, I'm not worthy to have you in my house. Just say the word, and I trust that he will be healed. Here the centurion says, hey, I know how things are. I know how authority works. I tell this person, go, and he goes, and come, and he comes. All you need to do is say the word, I trust it will be done. And then Jesus actually commends this man. says, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel, a Gentile, and he was commended. And for you and I to desire to be commended in faith, commended in faith because we don't have the eyes of flesh that limit what Christ can and will do. 
It requires us to have the eye of faith to be able to see what he is doing now. That's, that's where faith is manifested, what he is doing here and now. That we ought not to see obstacles. We ought to be seeing opportunities. We ought to believe that Jesus indeed conquers. He conquers greatly. Well, God can't save someone like that. Well, where, where did we ever get that thought from? God saved sinners. He saved us. Certainly he can save others. God is still working now to save sinners. We think also about service. They were commended for service. Our, our, our scriptures tell us that God doesn't overlook this service lightly. Hebrews 6.10 For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. That Jesus said, even the giving of a cup of cold water will not be forgotten. To think that there's somebody watching. Jesus says, even the little acts that we do, he will reward you. You'll be remembered. We think also about Jesus and how bias, bias is part of life. Everyone who's a sinner is going to be biased in some way. That when we hear people say certain things, we always think about it in some kind of a context of what we know of the person. Well, well so-and-so is biased in this way. So-and-so holds to these views and has these kinds of convictions. That is what their words mean. Everyone has some bias because there's sin involved. When Jesus speaks... There is no bias. He has, he's not tainted by any sin. And besides, his opinion is the only opinion that matters. So when he commends the church in Thyatira, we ought to heed it. We ought to believe it, that he commends them for certain things. Then he also rebukes them for certain things. It's also a good understanding for us, a good practice to learn what Jesus has done here. That you and I ought to be able to see the positives in any situation. We ought to be able to see the positives in people. We ought to be able to see the positives in what the Lord has given us. If we're ever in a situation that we say in this situation, nothing good will come from this. There's nothing good in this relationship that God has given me. Then we're already so horrendously biased in the negative. God is the one who redeems people. He redeems relationships. That he has given us that which is good. If ever we're saying there's nothing good in the situation, we've lost something. We ought to see God's hand of goodness manifested. There's also the matter of patient endurance. That the church in Thyatira was commended for their patient endurance. It's not a small thing to function within a society, at the same time, uh, maintain and hold fast your conviction to Jesus Christ. There's always the challenge. Are you willing to lose? There's a desire, an inherent desire for us to win. No one likes to lose. Most, well, most people don't like to lose. But part of functioning in the Christian life, in this world, 
is that we will have to lose certain things in this world, certain advantages, certain privileges, because of the name of Jesus Christ. And that there should be a willingness to forego those things. I mean, look in the book of Hebrews. Why is it mentioned that the author commends these Jewish Christians that they gladly gave up their property? Meaning that there was some type of unjust, immoral uh, a confiscation of property. But there was, hey, you know what? You said I'm a Christian and I can't have these things. Well, I, you're going to take them then. Go ahead. Well, hey, if you deny Christ, we will let you keep it. No, not willing to do that. Go ahead, it's yours. Take it. And, and so life is. Each one of those opportunities is a challenge to us. What are you treasuring in this life? Is it the finer things of life? Is it to get the applause of men? Is it to get uh, the latest and the greatest items? We ought to understand that our treasure is Jesus himself. Even as he says, and I will give him the morning star. That's Jesus himself. There was patient endurance. The small city, Thyatira, they had these trade guilds. Apparently, it was rather common in that time and in these areas. The trade guilds uh, govern all types of fields. Just about any field that you had, any kind of occupation you could hold, it was governed by some trade guild. And the trade guild, as being a very religious uh, culture, that there was a patron deity, a patron false god in charge of the guild. And there was token worship required. Uh, they often had meals together. And after the meals, there was some kind of practice of sexual immorality. And the participation was not only expected, it was required. Yet, how does a person function if, if you were uh, some kind of a baker? Let's say you, you bake bread and you're part of the guild. Well, how do you function now that you're converted? How you're, now you're a follower of Christ? Well, what do you do? Because they've said, well, the stuff that you enjoyed in our trade guild, the, the uh, eating food sacrificed to idols, and, and then... Uh, practicing sexual immorality, you seem to love it. You were, you were one of the biggest proponents. Now that you, you claim to be a Christian, you're saying you can't do it anymore. Well, hey, if you're, if you're not going to practice it, then you will lose your license, and you will not be able to bake bread in our city anymore. Well, hey, we're left with a choice there. Are we going to believe God's promise that he will provide for us? Anyone who resisted or attempted to opt out of these activities would be shamed, ridiculed, reviled, worse yet, we'll lose a job. Well, I got to be able to function. I got to be able to live in this world. Well, what about your witness? What about your loyalty to Jesus Christ? Poverty then was the expected outcome for Christians who sought to be faithful. Perseverance was needed. This is the patient endurance that Jesus is commending. And he says to him that your latter works exceeded the first. How many of us, how many of us have started to lose that first love? The fervency for following, for serving Christ, that there was a bit more activity in our youth and we had more energy. But here, Jesus is actually saying, as these people matured, that their service didn't become less. Their service actually became greater. It became more faithful. They became more fervent in, in, in the service of Christ. How is this not commendable for every one of us? 
Any of us who, who have lost the, the, the zeal for evangelism or the zeal for serving others or giving generously, may we also follow these Thyatirans, they, that they, they did well and that their latter works exceeded the first works. What a list of commendations for Thyatira. Love, faith, service, patient endurance. Now, we think about how the church in Ephesus and the church in Thyatira were almost these mirror opposites. Christ commended Thyatira for love, but he rebuked the church in Ephesus for forgetting their first love. It's no surprise. It's if a church forgets their first love of Christ, then their love for their fellow man will be lacking. And Christ commends uh, the church in Ephesus for their discernment, uh, for their love of truth, for, for weeding out the false. Yet Christ rebukes the church in Thyatira for tolerating Jezebel, the false prophetess, who led others astray in both doctrine and life. Yet both, both of them were commended for their perseverance and their steadfast endurance. Have you ever wondered, what would Christ's commendation and his rebuke be for you? And what about for our church? Are we sticklers for truth? But have we given up our love for Christ and our fellow man? Or are we those who love freely, but perhaps at times at the expense of truth and holiness? So this is the second point, Christ's commendation. The third point, Christ's censure and condemnation in verses 22, uh, sorry, 20 to 23. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her will throw... I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Here Jesus rebukes them. He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching, seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. It's not that the church in Thyatira actually had a woman named Jezebel. And you notice, there's all kinds of children in the church that are given good names, Sarah, Rachel, Leah, Lydia, right? These are the common ones. Hey, how often do you meet Jezebels? You just don't, just don't meet Jezebels in the church, right? It's, there's a reason for that. Right? There's a reason for that. And we ought to understand, it's not as if there was actually a, a, a lady named Jezebel in the church of Thyatira. Just as there wasn't a person named Balaam, right, in, in the church there in, uh, is it Pergamum? Uh, no, this, Jesus is, is using a, uh, is it a metaphor? He, he's using a name to identify someone who's like uh, a person that we know. So he's saying that this woman Jezebel is false prophetess, that she was one who was leading people astray. It's just like the story of Ahab. Here we think about the, 
uh, the historic Jezebel, this wife of Ahab, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. So, so she was one of these Phoenicians. And uh, she, her father was involved in the worship of Baal. That Jezebel's influence, you can think about Jezebel, she was kind of like those uh, hundreds of wives and concubines that Solomon had. Where they said, hey, Solomon, I'm from this country and I worship this God. And I will have a te temple or a statue to my false god here by this time next year. And Solomon says, you're right, let's do it. And apparently this is what was happening with, uh, with Ahab. That this gal Jezebel, uh, let's just say uh, she, she wore the pants in that household, right? So he was, she was saying, hey, this is how things are going to get done. Uh, Baal and Asherah. And another name, uh, Ashtoreth, right? Ashtoreth, Asherah. The Asherah pole, we can think about it. If you've ever been to uh, Vancouver or you know, that part of British Columbia and Canada, they have these totem poles. You go to the park, they have these Indian totem poles. They're probably very similar to that, right? These Asherah poles. And Baal, Asherah, Ashtoreth, these were false gods of, of uh, the people around Israel. And they were all these fertility gods and goddesses. And the worship of them involved sexual immorality, all kinds of horrific perversions. And it was present there in Thyatira. It was just a different name of a false god, right? Different name, same practices. <clears throat> Here, we ought to think for a moment, for those of you who are young, for those of you who aspire to be married, it's very important especially for the young men. It's very important, the woman that you choose to marry. Because if you marry this Jezebel, think about it like this. How often is it that a man gets this headbutting into the brick wall? Don't mock me here. I, headbutting into a brick wall of, hey, I'm not sure where I ought to be going. And, and the woman comes by and says, hey, you need to be doing this, this, and this. Well, do, do you want a woman like Jezebel to be giving you advice on what you should be doing when, when, when you're confused or you're discouraged? Look at, look at Jezebel's advice to, to Ahab in this story. Hey, you're not eating bread because you're sad? Well, I'm going to help you get this vineyard. I'm going to arrange for Naboth to be in the city. We'll have these two worthless persons falsely accuse him, and then we're going to have him stoned. Think about what this woman did. How horrendous that was. Do you want someone like that giving you advice? Do not be, do not be like the Samson. Father, get her for me, for she looks good to me. This would be horrible. If she is one who despises the Lord and does not submit to Jesus Christ, this would be a danger. You ought to see this as a no way. It cannot be done. We think also about women. <clears throat> women, prophetesses, they were present in the Old Testament, they were present in the New Testament. But there are no, no prophets today, means there are no prophetesses today. Uh, was the period of prof prophetesses gone? It seemed as if it were, because you look uh, in, in the book of Acts, well, there were prophetesses mentioned, but then you look in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, or 1st first, first and 2nd Timothy, and Titus doesn't talk about it, the, the pastoral epistles speak about proper functioning within the church, but no mention is made about how prophets and prophetesses were supposed to operate. We have some idea about that. 
especially today, no prophets exist. We see certain limitations that God has given to women. God has opened the gospel ministry to men only. See that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It was the woman who was deceived and not man. In college, I was at a church where uh, it's called egalitarian, right? Meaning that they believe men and women were equally open. I listened to their arguments, the best ones they had. It boiled down to women weren't educated back then. They are now, so now they're equally suitable for the gospel ministry. Well, wait a minute. How do we answer 1 Timothy 3? It was, it was Eve who was deceived, not Adam. Right? This is the reason that God gives, addresses certain, certain logical arguments that we have. They, they, have no, they don't have an answer for that. Here we think about creating the image of God. Eh, doesn't say anything about a woman is less created in the image of God than man. No, doesn't say that at all. It says they have different strengths. I don't want you to walk away thinking that, uh, that this means we can disrespect women because that's never to be true. When you look at Christianity, women in Christianity have the highest status in any religion. In what religion can you have it that a woman can actually divorce her husband? If, if he is breaking the marriage covenant by adultery, in other societies, other cultures, other religions, a woman has no right to divorce. They do in Christianity. So, hey, we think also about how, how we're not saying in any way that women, we dismiss their opinions or, or their words. You should be able to receive the rebuke of a woman in church. If she comes and, and gives you admonishment, gives you rebuke, you ought to be able to receive it. I ought to be able to receive it. I receive rebukes from my wife all the time. I receive rebukes from my daughter even. That's somewhat laughable. She gives me warning. Oh, you're right. I should heed that. Even my daughter can, can come to me and approach me and say those things. This ought to be true for us. That we ought to value the, the opinions of women. And that uh, being a man doesn't mean that we dismiss their input. Hey, I'm going to be a man. I'm, my wife has recommended this. I'm going to go against it. That's not, that's not called good, godly, biblical headship. right? We certainly should take their input. We should heed their warnings. Here, this whole matter about God giving her time to repent. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I will throw her onto a sick bed. Here God is saying, Jesus has said, that he gave her time to repent. Do you realize what Jesus has said? Do you realize that Jesus is far, far more patient than you and me? How, how quickly do we think, hey, you know what? This person is, has... has uh, laughed in my face, I, I went to them with the word, and they blew me off. We need to proceed to church discipline. No, 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 no. This is not how Jesus works. He doesn't work that fast. He doesn't work in terms of hours or days. When Jesus says, hey, I gave her time to repent, we must believe him at his word, because you think about how patient God is. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You realize that our God is far more patient and long-suffering than you and me. We make a mockery of him if we think that somehow we're more patient than he is. He, no, not at all. He is far more patient with us. Just look at your own life and how we're not stricken dead because of our sins. So God said... 
he gave her time to repent, and we ought to believe him at his word. It says here that she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Many accuse God of wrongdoing, of being judgmental, mean-spirited, bigoted. But how often do we say, hey, listen, eh, it's not God. God's standard is, 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 is good and holy and right. So, it's our, so are his commandments. But she refused to repent. It was Jezebel who was choosing death. You think about what sin is, is desiring death. Then in Proverbs, the warning was, all who hate me love death. Mm -hmm. They chose death over life. They chose idolatry over Jesus Christ. He says, I will throw her onto a sickbed. But notice he also says, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. So there's a difference that Jezebel apparently many warnings Many admonitions, many rebukes had been given to her, but she refused. She continued. Yet, with, with those who were following her, Jesus has a different method. He will throw them into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Meaning that there's still much opportunity. Hey, listen, through this tribulation, would they be those who say, well, we've had a difficult here. We have to examine our own lives. What is the Lord telling us? What, what, what is he wanting us to do? We should be repenting of our sins. <clears throat> he says, I will strike her children dead. And he says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Jesus identifies himself as the just, just judge who sees all. Hebrews 4.13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus calls us all to give an account. Do you even for a moment think that you will escape God's searching eye, his eye of flaming fire? Are we going to escape him? He's going to look down into the inner recesses of our hearts. There's, there's nothing hidden from God. Think back to God visiting Abraham and Sarah. And you know, Abraham and Sarah, they're old. They have no children. And God says, this time next year, you will have a child. And then there, Sarah's in the brow. <laughs> she laughs. And, and hey, it's like, hey, you laughed. And you're, 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 this child would be named Isaac. <laughs> no, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did laugh. And you think about how God remembers. It, it was not a minor thing that she laughed because there would be a child by this name of he laughs. That these words matter to God. That God is the one who searches the hearts. It's a necessary reminder that God will judge justly and thoroughly every sinner on judgment day. We have a reminder about the low view of Christians regarding church discipline. Oftentimes there's that, those, those questions that come up. Who are they to condemn others? Well, we can answer that. We, we are nobody. We have the authority God has given us that we're called to be stewards, to, to tell others that, hey, these are God's requirements. We don't make up rules. We don't legislate rules. Just who do they think they are? Well, we're not high and mighty in ourselves. We're called 
to be Christ's servants. How dare they? Well, we wouldn't be doing it unless Christ commanded us to do it. You think about what is the better way? The false prophets were told in the past, mentioned in in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Hey, don't worry. You can continue living this life. Jesus will still accept you. And then the end is that Jesus says, no, I don't know where you got that from. In church discipline, a sinner is being told that his beliefs or his actions do not align with Christ's. Last time I checked, this is merciful. It takes boldness to be able to say that. In contrast to a world that says, you should receive this person, you should accept them, whatever they are, whoever they are, whatever they're doing, who are you to call them wrong? You realize there will always be the arguments from the world coming, saying that we have no authority, uh, you're foolish, you're nobody, and, and Jesus, he died, and that was it. Whatever's the case, they'll, they'll always have their false arguments. But church discipline is never based and should never be based on the opinions of man or the purposes of club exclusion. Right? It's, not, it's not because we want to exclude somebody. You see the goals that we read earlier regarding church discipline. To reclaim the wayward sinner. To deter others from sinning. <clears throat> to vindicate the honor of Christ. And to prevent God's wrath on the church. The goal is that the sinner will be won back. That there would be loyalty, honor to Christ. That there would be new obedience. Jesus also says, And I will give to each of you according to your works. Jeremiah 17.10 I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It's not as if, for those who have no faith in Christ, that they have any works that are commendable. Rather, the promise here is specifically about demerits. For those who have lived in disobedience, he's saying that he will give them according to their works. He will judge them according to their demerits. They will, each one of them will be punished appropriately. So that's the third point, Christ's censure and condemnation. We also have the fourth point, Christ's consolation and challenge. In verses 24 to 29. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father." And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here Jesus is one who doesn't lay down massive burdens on people. This is what he rebuked the Jewish leaders for. That they lay heavy burdens upon the people. And then he rebukes them for saying that they don't do a finger to lift it. Jesus is not one who lays, lays down undue burdens. We're reminded that Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's the, false, it's the false religious leaders who require you to obey their word. Jesus doesn't add to his word, and nor should any of us. It is not the right of the church 
for leaders in the church to legislate new laws for God's people or to bind their consciences to their own rules. Christ's standard alone is high enough and worthy of our obedience. That we cannot bind your conscience to our word. We can tell you that you have a duty to obey God's word. That's the extent to what we can do. Think about the deep things of Satan. He says those who did not, uh, but have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. is as if Jezebel was saying, hey, I don't think you fully understand. Uh, I don't think you fully understand this Christian life. You need to be able to get involved in all kinds of sexual activity. And then you can walk away from and say, hey, I, I, know, I know what that was all about. But you realize that this is all a ruse of Satan. Because the deeper you get into it, it's like, it's like getting into quicksand, right, with both feet. You get both feet in there, you're not going to be able to get out. And that's the devil's lie. So once you're neck deep into it, you can never walk away. We shouldn't think that we can, that we can just you know, br- brush off whatever dirt and be done with it. That there are deep things in the Christian life, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That great is the mystery of godliness, that we ought to desire those things, that we ought to engulf ourselves in what is pleasing to the Lord. Yet Jesus says, only hold fast what you have until I come. That Jesus here is commanding that you persevere in the Christian life. That you hold fast to Christ himself. Here, we ought to understand that it's what you have. Meaning, the very promises that God has given us in Jesus Christ. It's not as if someday he will actually give it to us. When you believed in Jesus Christ, you crossed from death to life. You think about Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, they are already yours. Hold fast to what you have. These are yours. Eternal life, heaven, eternal riches, they are already yours in Christ. You ought to believe that you possess it. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. There are two promises. The first is Christ promises to his faithful followers that they will rule with him. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The saints will judge angels too. That however small account you have in this life, however little authority you have, we're reminded about a great revolution that will come. It's the revolution that our Lord Jesus will lead. The first will be last, and the last will become first. This is why... We who are Christians, who are the last in this world, that we're going to be judging the, judging the world and angels also. That we'll be given that authority that we don't have, apparently, in this world. And I will give him the morning star. Eh, Revelation 22 speaks about this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You who perseveres to the end, that Jesus is your reward. You think about, it's not what Jesus gives you, it's Jesus himself. He is that bright morning star. Then he says to, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice that all seven of the letters 
to the churches in Asia. They have this phrase or this, this statement, he who he has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It underscores the importance of heeding and obeying the word of our Lord. That we should be those who recognize the voice of Jesus. That we would listen to him. That when he rebukes, that we ought to be submitting. We think about the great gospel promises here. That our God is one who gave time for us to repent. That there's no shortage of time. He commands us to repent and believe upon him. That he is the bright morning star. He is the son of God and he speaks with authority. That if you are outside of Christ, may you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. For he alone is our hope for forgiveness and eternal life. Also, we ought to learn that we should aspire to be commended for love, for faith, for service, for patient endurance. It's not to be overlooked or discounted. These are no small things that you and I would excel in love, in faith, in service, in patience, but not at the expense of discernment, of truth, and of holiness. It's a reminder that we all must watch our life and our doctrine closely. Not only what we believe, what we're holding to as dear, uh, the, the, the truths by which we judge others and uh, right and wrong. We only need to consider what those key tenets are. Are they what the Lord has given us in his word? It's a reminder that what you have in Christ is yours now already. It's not something that someday, if you work hard enough, he'll give you. It's something that's already yours. It's a reminder also to us that you ought not to delay your repentance even for a moment. Satan's claim is always that repentance can happen tomorrow. But in procrastination, that tomorrow will never come. If anyone's thinking, you know what, I'm working hard, I'm trying to provide for my family, those are good things. But if it's at the cost of following Jesus Christ, I've heard people say, you know what, you know, when I finish my career, then I'll be faithful to follow Jesus. I can assure you, they won't. They're going to have so much time, so many things to fill their time once they're retired, that time won't come. If Jesus is worth following, if it's right to repent, then it's right to do it now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of repentance. God is patient, and he doesn't want any to perish, but he wants all to turn in repentance. And here we ought to be reminded that uh, we ought to have a love for truth. We ought to have a love for the Lord Jesus. We also have, ought to have a love for our fellow man. May we desire to excel in these things, knowing that our Lord Jesus has commanded it of us. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you.